All right. My name is John, and I'm one of the pastors here. And again, welcome uh, to community. You know what I'm going to do? If we could, uh, I want you to turn to someone near you and try to find someone that you might not know real, real quick here, okay? And just introduce yourself, okay? And then tell that person the story behind your name, okay? Tell that person the story behind your name. Uh, maybe you were named after somebody, okay? Maybe you just happen to have the trendy name in your era. But do that real quick, okay? Well, I tell you what, it doesn't take long to get this group talking. I could hardly even get that out of my mouth. All right. Good stuff. You know, uh, most people call me John, but my real name is Jonathan. And I don't know if my parents had a grand plan to have two boys in a row, but it worked out that way, and they named us David and Jonathan. And they've always told us that we were named after two characters from the Bible, David, King David, the one who took down the giant Goliath, and his good friend Jonathan. And so you might say that I was, you know, named after somebody famous, or you might say I was named after the friend of somebody famous. Either way, you know, that's the story behind my name. And I think we would all agree, though, no matter how you got your name, our names tend to be one of our primary identity markers, don't they? And that's one reason why we like to share the meaning behind the names of the children uh, who get dedicated when we dedicate the children here at Community Christian Church. But if you ever wonder, okay, what it would be like to share the first and last name of someone really famous, sound like fun? Uh, well, we'll see. Take a look at this. I'm always disappointing people when they realize that I'm not that guy. <laughs> I actually got kicked off of Facebook for a few months. I had a stalker. So I go and check my messages, and there's this weird man that keeps calling over and over and over again. But everyone knew that they were holding the flight for David Letter. And uh, I got onto the plane, which they were holding, and it was late, and then the captain says, uh, it's not him, and everyone booed. Our neighbor from across the street sends me all these photos of these, like, these Japanese tourists or families on my porch photographing themselves. She sent me a couple hair packages, I guess started leafing through it and she had some locks of hair taped to like a love letter and <laughs> it was weird. I'd say every single day when I make a reservation or say my name for any reason, people will make a comment. Oh, you know, you're heavier than her or you're thinner than her or you're much sweeter than her. Socially it's not so great because I'm not that good with names and everyone remembers my name. Everyone always remembers meeting me. Then when they ask me, are you him? And while they're looking right at me, like, they'll be staring right at my face, like, oh, are you the David Letterman? And I'm like, you're looking right at me. Why are you asking me if I'm David Letterman? <laughs> That's funny stuff right there. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, you know, you may not have a famous name or share the name of a famous person, but I'm guessing just about all of us, you know, from time to time can probably relate to the feeling of just not really being the per person people think we are. I don't know, maybe you tend to base your self-worth sometimes off of your net worth or on what you think others think you're worth. Or, or could it be that too often, you know, you feel like your real worth is mostly based on how well you perform. 
Well, today we begin this new series, a brand new series, three weeks called Lies We Believe. And it's about our life and it's about our identity and confronting the lies that we tend to buy into so often that keep us from being all that God wants us to be. Uh, Pete Scazzaro, he's a pastor at a church in New York City, and he wrote a great book, and the title of the book is Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And in the book, Scazzaro tells his own story of how he just about lost his marriage, his church, and he would say he just about lost himself because he believed these lies that have a tendency to so derail us and keep us from becoming all that God created us to be. And Scazzaro contends this. He says, the reason so many people fail to mature spiritually, fail to grow in their relationship with God and with Jesus, is because they fail to grow emotionally. And he says, you know what? You really can't separate the two. Spiritual maturity is not possible without emotional maturity. They really go hand in hand. They are like hand in glove. They are together. And he says, that's why people who have been Christians for so long often still fail to grow in their relationship with Jesus, because they haven't really matured emotionally. And here's what Scazzaro says. I want to read this from the, from the book. He says, the vast majority of us, of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life, or at least someone else's expectations for us. And this does violence to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. That's some pretty strong language. And so over the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to delve into these three dangerous lies that we so often believe that really can, I believe, derail us from living out the dream that God has for our lives. And the first lie, the first lie we're talking about today is the performance lie. And this lie wants us to believe, I am what I do. I am what I do. I mean, it seems like from the, from the moment we're born almost, I mean, so much of our value is measured based on what we do, right? I mean, somebody has a baby and it's not long before we can't wait for them to walk and talk. You know, when a child is getting ready for preschool, I mean, it seems like we freak out anymore if they're not reading at a level where they can, you know, breeze through Homer's Odyssey, right? And when you're in high school, I mean, it's all about GPA and then it's about ACT and SAT and then it becomes all about what college will or will not accept you. You know, I mean, and then later on in life, I mean, it's about marital status, career choice, income level, or the title that you have on your, on your business card. And then about halfway through your career, it's about how much you have or don't have in your 401k to prepare for retirement. Am I right? I mean, it's honestly, it's like, you know, perform, perform, perform. And I think on some level, all of us buy into that lie, I am what I do. And let's face it, I mean, it can wear you out. Tell me, turn to the person next to you and say, it can wear you out. (laughs) Some of you said that with some gusto, actually. Yeah. You know, I mean, even people, if you think about it, even people whom most would say have performed exceptionally well still oftentimes don't feel like they measure up. Uh, Steve Croft interviewed quarterback Tom Brady for the news show 60 Minutes, not long after Brady had won his third Super Bowl with the New England Patriots. Calm your hearts, ladies. I know it's, he's a handsome man, okay? I, I, I'm not sure that was a lady, though, actually. <laughs> it was probably just a stinking Patriots fan. Would somebody please escort him? Oh, it's Lucas, our worship leader. I'm sorry, I have to report this. He actually is a Patriots fan. It, it's hard to believe he can be so genuine on stage and like the Patriots, isn't it? I, because they're cheat- cheaters, aren't they? <laughs> I 
I see what you did. Like, I was on with this talk, and now you derailed me completely. All right, let's talk about Tom Brady. So anyway, Steve Croft for 60 Minutes was interviewing Tom Brady, and he's going to get after me for going too long now. All right. But Brady spoke uh, about his search for significance, and I, I thought it was really fascinating. Croft asks Brady this question. He says, this whole experience, this whole upward trajectory, he says, and he asks him, what have you learned about yourself? What kind of an effect did it have on you? And then Brady said this. He said, well, I put incredible amounts of pressure on me. When you feel like you're ultimately responsible for everyone and everything, there's a lot of pressure. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something more out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. Croft then asked him, what's the answer? And Brady responded, well, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, it's incredible. In spite of all that he's accomplished, how well he's performed for Tom Brady, it's still not enough. At least on that day, it wasn't. Now, as far as I know, we don't have any Super Bowl-winning quarterbacks in the room. Anybody? Okay, I didn't think so. But do you ever feel like you're just not able to keep up? Do you ever feel like you just don't measure up? You know, you're just not good enough? You know, a Community Christian Church, we have measurable goals and, and key objectives for our staff, like a lot of organizations probably do in ministries. And we establish these goals and objectives for ourselves at the beginning of the fiscal year, and those can be very good and important tools for us to kind of track our progress so that we continue to further the mission here at Community, right? And we hold ourselves accountable with those tools. And we have sort of a, a rating system, okay, that allows us to track our progress throughout the year. And we use a color system, all right, where we rate ourselves how we're accomplishing our objectives. Green is you're exceeding your objective. Yellow is a sort of a warning sign that you might not be quite making it. And red means you're not cutting it, <laughs> You're not likely to meet your objective. Now, let me just say, we rate ourselves, okay? But I also got to be honest with you, it affects me a little too much when I have a yellow or a red next to one of my objectives. And nobody's telling me, nobody ever tells me my self-worth is based on my performance or the progress that I'm making on a key objective. I put that kind of pressure on myself. But when I do, what am I doing? See, I am buying into this lie, aren't I? I am what I do. And it's interesting to me, you know, Jesus faced the same temptation. Yeah, Jesus faced the same temptation. Luke, who was a doctor, also wrote the third book in the New Testament, and he records it like this. Here's what he says. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Now, let me make just a few observations here, okay? First of all, this journey into the wilderness and this encounter with the evil one takes place at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, okay? It's at the very beginning of his public ministry. He's about 30 years old, okay, which is still pretty young. At that time, though, it was probably, you know, three-quarters of the way through his entire life expectancy. But up until now, he's lived in pretty much relative obscurity. He hasn't made a name for himself yet. I mean, he's done nothing of significance, but as he's about to carry out his mission into the world, God's spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days. Now, what I want you to notice next is something I'm not sure I ever really recognized before. Look at how long the devil tempts Jesus. Check it out. It was a full 40 days. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I've always kind of pictured the devil sort of like, you know, popping in and out from time to time over the course of those 40 days, almost like the old cartoon characters, you know, the little devil used to sit on their shoulder, then disappear and come back from time to time. But Luke says it was a 40-day battle. I mean, imagine what that was like, battling with the devil for 40 straight days by yourself in the wilderness. Now, here's why this is important, okay? Because sometimes I find it easier to relate to Jesus' divinity, or right? the fact that he was God rather than his humanity. And I kind of begin to think of him as some sort of a superhuman, kind of a Teflon man where you know, the real pressures and temptations of life didn't really touch him like they touch us. But see, that is a dangerous, dangerous assumption, not only because it's not true, but because if we see him in that way, we might not think that he can relate to what we're going through. And in the book of Hebrews, later on in the New Testament, a book written to Jewish Christians, we read this. For we do not have a high priest. Okay, he's talking about Jesus there when he says high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus faced the same pressures, the same temptations as we do. He was vulnerable to the performance lie just like we are. And so let me ask you, okay, if you were left in the wilderness for 40 days without any food, how do you think you'd be feeling? Yeah, you'd be hungry. I mean, I get hungry after like two or three hours without food. And if we go back to our story, that's exactly how Jesus felt. He was hungry, physically weak, and it's in this weakened state that the evil one comes after him in a very specific way. The devil says to him this. He says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. See, the devil challenges him to perform. Yeah, perform a miracle. But don't think that this challenge was only about, you know, bread. I mean, the devil, he's going after something so much more in this temptation, so much deeper than simply food for the stomach. He is going after Jesus' identity. I mean, put yourself in Jesus' shoes or sandals for a minute, okay? I mean, he hasn't done anything of notable significance for the first 30 years of his life. He hasn't healed anyone that we know of. He hasn't taught anybody. Nobody's following him. He's supposed to be on this mission to save the world. And here he is, weak and all alone in the desert. And the evil one has challenged him to, to prove that he is somebody by performing. Do something significant, Jesus. If you are the son of God, the devil says, if you are really somebody, then prove it. And isn't that what the performance lie is all about? I mean, challenging us to prove our, our worth, taunting us, you know, with questions like, you know, well, what have you really accomplished? I mean, how have you really demonstrated your value? What sort of influence do you really have? You know, Dave, uh, my brother and I, we've had the opportunity to write a few books and, uh, and it is really an honor. It's been fun. I'm always amazed that people actually read them. At least a few people do, me and my brother and my, our wives, I think. But uh, Amazon uh, has this page for authors that they give you sort of a, um, a username and a password, and you can actually check the ranking of your book. Just what I need. Yeah, they have arrows. A green arrow up means your book is trending up. A red arrow down means your book is trending down. Anybody here ever taken the Finders test? It's kind of this personality profile. 
They, they tell you what your five, top five personality strengths out of about 32. My number one strength, so-called strength, is competition. <laughs> yeah, I struggle with the performance lie. That ranking thing on Amazon is the worst invention known to man. Because <laughs> the truth is, even when we do succeed or feel like we've accomplished something, it's never enough. I mean, the performance lie is always unrelenting, asking, okay, well, what have you done for me lately, Right? And I believe that the evil one attacks us here because we are so vulnerable to this lie. I love what theologian N.T. Wright said about this particular lie. He said, every Christian will be tested at the points which matter most in his or her life and vocation. That's where you're going to be tested, where it matters most to you. It is a central part of Christian vocation to learn to recognize the voices that whisper attractive lies, to distinguish them from the voice of God, and to use the simple but direct weapons provided in Scripture to rebut lies with truth. I am what I do. The performance lie. And because we buy into that lie, we try to prove our worth over and over and over again. But you know, Jesus, he is our hero and he is our example and he didn't sell out to the lie. He took the devil's best punch and says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And it was his way of saying, huh, no thank you, Satan. I reject your lie. I won't, and I'm not gonna have to prove anything to anyone. And so my question is this, all right? What empowered Jesus to resist the performance lie? I mean, why didn't he think he had to do something to prove himself? Why? Well, see, I think first and foremost, Jesus knew who he was. Interesting, if you back up just one chapter, okay, we're looking at Luke 3, or Luke 4. If you look, look back to Luke 2, we're looking at Luke 3, look back to Luke 2, we see that right before the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, he is baptized by John the Baptist. As Jesus comes up out of the water, the voice of his Father echoes from heaven and says, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son, God says to Jesus. With you, I am well pleased. I love you. That's how I feel about you. That's your identity. That is your value. That is your worth. And again, remember, Jesus has yet to perform any miracles. He hasn't taught anyone. He hasn't died on the cross to save humanity. See, the love for his father that he has for him is not based on his performance. No, it comes before he does anything. And it serves as the foundation for his identity. And so when Jesus finds himself in the wilderness being tempted by that lie, you are what you do, he's able to resist that lie because he is secure in his identity as God's beloved child. Or to put it another way, his performance did not prove his worth. His identity was already established. A few years back, I had the opportunity to travel to Russia uh, it was an amazing trip, and we were working with some pastors through our new thing, our church planting mission. And these guys in Russia are just, I mean, they're giving their life to blessing that part of the world. It's an amazing experience. And one of these young pastors that was gathered there told a story about he and his dad, and apparently his dad was a pastor too, and from time to time his dad would travel throughout Russia training other leaders. And he said that one time when he was a young man, he went with his dad to this gathering where his dad was training these other pastors and being a young man, I think he was maybe in his early teens, he was kind of half listening, half not, when his dad all of a sudden introduces him to all the other men that are gathered there. And here is how his dad introduced him. He said this, he said, 
I want you to meet my son. This is Andy, in whom I am well pleased. And his dad was quoting God's words about his own son, Jesus, and using them to bless and affirm his son. And the amazing thing was that happened about 30 plus years ago. But as this grown man began to tell that story, tears came to his eyes. Because in that moment, see, he knew he was loved, blessed by his dad. And you know what? It was based on nothing he did. It was simply based on who he was. He was his son. He was his child. And here's the amazing, crazy, hard-to-believe truth. Folks, God gives us that same identity. Your worth, your value is not based on what you do. Your worth, your value is anchored in the fact that you are God's beloved child in whom he is well pleased. One of Jesus' closest followers, John, wrote these words. He said, to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Where does our birth come from? I mean, what gives us the right to be called the child of God? Is it anything we've done? Is it how we perform? No, our birth comes from God when we simply put our trust in his son, Jesus. That's it. And I know... Because I'm with you. I mean, in the midst of our brokenness, our heartache, and our shame, there is still a part of us that just so thinks, if only I can perform well or do well or measure up to some arbitrary standard, then I will be of some worth or value. Folks, that is a lie. That's a lie. You're not what you do. Your worth is not based on how well you perform. When you put your trust in Jesus, you are a child of God with whom he is well pleased. You know, Brennan Manning was a nationally known speaker and author uh, who died just a few years ago. He was a former priest and a recovering alcoholic. And maybe if you've been around here at all any time, you've heard us say this phrase, God loves you as you are and not as you should be. Well, he's the first person we ever heard talk about God that way. And he came to community several years back, and I would say that he helped give many of us a whole new appreciation for God's grace and love. And about seven years ago, someone captured him on video talking about God's love in this way. Now, the video was of such poor quality, we couldn't really show it, but his words were so valuable, uh, we wanted to share them with you today. Listen to this. In the 48 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus, in a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania. And then literally the thousands of hours of prayer, meditation, silence, and solitude over those years, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question, and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? that I waited for you day after day, that I longed to hear the sound of your voice. The real believers there will answer, yes, Jesus. I believe in your love and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful 
in our ministry, in our practice, in our church going, are going to have to reply, <clears throat> well, frankly, no, sir. I mean, I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a wonderful, a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking, a kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on the back to cheer me on. And there's the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. No one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love, but at the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, pessimism, low self-esteem, self-hatred, and despair that block God's way to us. Do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Remember the famous line of the French philosopher, Blaise Pascal? God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. We often make God in our own image, and he wants us to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. In the past couple of three years, I have preached the gospel to the financial community in Wall Street, New York City, the airmen and women of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, a thousand physicians in Nairobi. I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Chicago, St. Louis, Seattle, San Diego, and honest, the God of so many Christians I meet is a God who is too small for me because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God revealed by and in Jesus Christ who this moment comes right to your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be, because you're never gonna be as you should be. Yeah, that performance lie <clears throat> says you are what you do. You got to prove your worth. But Jesus comes to free us from that lie and says to every one of us, you are my son. You are my daughter. You are the child of God. That is who you are. Let's pray. Father God, we come uh, to you today and we, we recognize that, uh, boy, we are so prone to believe this lie that uh, I am what I do. But God, we are so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for his example that he resisted that temptation and recognized that he is a beloved, was a beloved child of yours, and we are too. God, help us to grasp that reality that you are a good father. It's who you are. We are your children. That's who we are. We pray this in your name. Amen.